Grab a seat. And good morning once again. Hey, if you have a Bible, we'll be in Nehemiah chapter 10. We are continuing um, our trek through the book of Nehemiah, and we are almost at the end. We probably we only have two more sermons in the book of Nehemiah. Sad days because I've actually loved spending time in this book, opening it up together. Let me read a little bit for us from Nehemiah chapter 10, and then we will jump in. Nehemiah chapter 10, starting in verse 1, and I won't get very far, so fear not. On the seals are the names of Nehemiah, the governor, the son of Hekeliah, and a lot of other people. Verse 32. Read it home with your children, it'll be great. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give a year, yearly a third of the part of a, um, of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, for the regular grain offerings, the regular burnt offerings, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, the sin offerings to make atonement for the work of the Lord. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for wood offering to bring them into the house of the Lord. Jump all the way to 39. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your grace on our lives. And thank you that you have brought people throughout generations to yourself. And Lord, as we look at names in the scripture, as we look at their commitment to not neglect your house, as we look at um, the decisions of the people of the past, I pray that we might evaluate ourselves and simply ask the question, are we willing to make a commitment to you, Lord? So Lord, I know a lot of us have come from a lot of different places, a lot of different um, faith backgrounds. I pray that we would see what commitments you would want us to make for your sake, that we might be your people that reflect your glory in our day. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm married. I have four kids. And, and the process of getting married was actually uh, more challenging to me personally than, than I would have thought. Because when you watch in the movies, you just think marriage is about love and easy decisions. Because you watch it, you're like, you meet one day in the movie, and they're like, oh man, the sunset was just perfect, we saw the flowers, let's get married tomorrow, you know, and that's kind of the, the track, like love is simple and quick, and, but for me, uh, it wasn't that way. We started dating, Hillary and I started dating uh, her freshman year of high school, my sophomore year of high school. She was 14, I was 16. We dated almost nine years before we got married, and you may be willingly ask the question, Kevin, what? so stinking long. And, and the, the simple answer is this, is that I knew the gravity of the commitment. I knew that I was going to be uniting myself to this woman for the rest of my life. And I knew that once I made that decision, I better be sure. And in, in that process of getting ready, um, I, I was, that summer was the summer of 2004 when we got engaged. And 
and I, was, I needed all the details to line up. I was actually running um, some races over in California. I was training all summer uh, in Park City, Utah, and then doing some races in California, and everything was getting ready for this. And, and I was in Utah at the time, and I'm like, I need to get a ring for this girl because I know I'm gonna ask this girl to marry me. And our, all of our families were flying out to California. Everyone was gonna be there. It was gonna be this huge deal. Um, and, and I knew I needed to get this ring, but I couldn't, um, I couldn't buy it in Utah because although Utah's great, I was never going back there. And uh, if there needed to be adjustments, we needed it back in Houston. So I had my mom buy the ring in Houston and fly it with her to California, flew the ring in purse, and then my mom handed me the box with the ring. Let me tell you what, there is nothing so heavy in all of existence than the weight of that ring in that box. It's only like three ounces or however many quarts, whatever. But I held it and then I put it on, I was in a hotel room, I put it on the hotel bed and I just took a step back. I was like, this is it. (laughs) This is decision time. And we went on and I I ran the races and then we got engaged um, out at Lake Tahoe, set up this beautiful little moment And then I got down on one knee. And you know what I didn't say in that moment? Hey, as long as it works out a little bit for us, I think I'm good. (laughs) As long as this feels good for the moment, I think we'll be, it'll work out. But as soon as like it doesn't feel good, like I'm out. Like I didn't make any of those statements. I said, Hillary, I love you. And I want to spend the rest of my life with you. Will you marry me. And the commitment didn't stop there. Several months later, in fact, for us, it was 18 months. I'm not recommending that. I'm just telling you what what we did. 18 months in in preparation for this day. And then we stand before God and everyone else. And the, the pastor, a good friend of mine, was in front of us. And he says, will you commit yourself for richer for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and health, till death do you part. In front of my friends, in front of our families, in front of everyone, I said, well, we'll see what happens. I said, I do. I do. Commitments matter. Commitments matter. And especially when the moments are, are, are that big, when, when they have life implications, when it's, when it's your wedding day, when it's those significant moments of life, your word matters, your commitments count. What you say, am I gonna commit myself to you? It actually deeply, deeply matters. And the reason I'm starting there is because really that's the issue that we're addressing in the book of Nehemiah. In Nehemiah, these people have written out their names in this document to commit themselves to serve God for the rest of their lives. It's a reiteration of the covenant. They are committing themselves to follow God. And and what's fascinating, you look in our culture, is that we are not a culture who's actually good at commitment. We're not a culture that actually sticks by our word. We actually, I was throwing in some little lobs into the wedding thing, but but for some of us, that's how we kind of treat relationships. That's how we treat our work. That's how we kind of treat a lot of things around us. And we we unfriend, we unfollow, we decommit 
quickly or, or some, some generations, and there's all this like accusation about it, whatever, but there's some generations that, that have a difficulty committing to stick to their word, to stick to what they say. But your word, your commitments matter deeply and they matter before God. Because here's the truth. God commits himself to you. And God also asks you to commit yourself to him. God commits himself to you. He says, I will die. He died in our place for our sins. And he says, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I will be here for you. And then in response, he actually asks the nation to commit themselves to him. And all throughout the Bible, you see the Jewish nation making moments when they are committing themselves to follow God. You see this in Deuteronomy chapter 28 through 30, where the nation stands before God as they read the covenant again, and they all stand and say, yes, we will follow you. In the book of Joshua, after they conquered the promised land, all the nation comes before um, this moment, and they're standing before Joshua, and Joshua says this in Joshua chapter 24, now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river in Egypt and serve the Lord. If there's evil in your eyes, I would say choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers that you serve beyond the river or the gods of the Amor the Amorites in the land who you dwell. But as for me in my house, we will serve the Lord. See, there's moments in life through the nation of Israel where they had to make the decision, who are we gonna serve? What are we gonna commit ourselves to? And in the Old Testament, they had covenantal promises that you were gonna be this nation under this law. And that's what the, the nation of Israel is doing here in the book of Nehemiah. And all of these names are listed of names of people that are committing themselves to follow God, to recommit themselves to the covenant that God had given. But, but does this apply to New Testament believers? Does this practice of commitment is there a correlation in the New Testament? Well, there's one statement that's said in, in three of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And just so you know, as you read your Bible, not every statement is reiterated in every single scripture. Not every uh, statement is reiterated in all the Gospels. But this one is. In Mark chapter eight, it says this. He says, in calling the crowds to him, he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Luke 9, 23 says this, and, all, and he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. And Matthew 16 says it again. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And he goes on to say, forever would forever would keep his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. There's a moment when Jesus is preaching and leading he, these people. And he says, here's what's gonna happen. You're gonna come to a moment of decision when you have to decide who you're gonna follow. And he says, whoever wants to save his life, and that, that, the word life is suke, it's, it's actually the word for identity. He says, whoever wants to, to retain their identity, here's what will happen, they'll lose it. But whoever loses himself for my sake, they lose themselves, they will find life. 
Tim Keller in his, his book, um, Jesus the King, says this, every culture points to certain things and says if you gain those, if you acquire or achieve those, you will have a self. You'll find you are valuable. Traditional cultures would say that you're nobody unless you gain the respectability and legacy of your family and your children. In individualistic cultures like the United States, it's different. The culture says you're nobody unless you gain a fulfilling career that brings money, reputation, status. Regardless of such differences, though, every culture says identity is performance-based and achievement-based. And Jesus says, I don't want you to simply shift from one performance-based identity to another. I want you to find a whole new way, a whole new identity. I want you to lose your old self, the old identity, and base yourself an identity in me and in the gospel. The decision that every Christian has to make is what is my identity going to be based in? Who am I going to follow? What am I going to commit myself to? And the Christian life requires us to make a decision. Not just believe, but to follow. Not just to say that I think Jesus was a good guy and I think he leads in a better way, but to commit to I want to be a disciple of Christ. I want to grow and look more like Christ. K. Arthur famously said, if you do not plan to live the Christian life totally committed to knowing your God and to walk in obedience to him, then don't begin. For this is what Christianity is all about. It's a change of citizenship, a change of governments, a change of allegiance. If you have no intention of letting Christ rule your life, then forget Christianity. It's not for you. And as I read those words, I, 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 I take this moment to go, okay, Lord, am I going to commit myself to you? Am I going to follow you above all else? And that's what the nation is dealing with in this moment. They're standing before God and saying, do I actually want to follow you above all else? And here's the deal. If you choose to follow Christ, it will impact every area of life. There's no part of your life that you can remain hidden. There's no part of your life that you can say, hey, now, well, that's like my little pocket here that, that's not affected by this allegiance. Your allegiance to Christ impacts every single area of life. And through this section, we're gonna look at three major areas of life. We're gonna look at your intimate personal relationships. We're gonna look at your finances. Uh-oh. And then we're gonna look at what you worship. And I'm not bringing these up because I have a desire to do so. I'm bringing these up because we're teaching from the word of God. And what's important to God should be important to us. And what God values, we need to value. And if God addresses it, we should address it in our own lives. So buckle up. We're going to talk about your commitment to Christ and how it impacts these three areas of life. The first one is this, to say this, our commitment counts because your commitments have a generational impact. Every name listed here are, are very, uh, it's interesting, they list a bunch of names of people and some of them had been um, already listed previously. In the book of Ezra or the beginning of the book of Nehemiah, many of these names have been listed Previously, I encourage you to go study these names and see where they, they line up. I won't go through all the details, but there's names that are important. In fact, at the beginning of it, you see Nehemiah's name, and he's listed as the governor. 
He's the governor of this region, and that's important. There was, he was accused of being, uh, setting himself up as, as the king, but he says, no, I'm, I'm actually just the governor representing these people. And in verses two through eight, you see a list of priests. These are the people in the priestly line. In verses nine through 13, you see a list of Levites. These were people that um, oversaw the sacrificial system. And then you see, um, at the end of this, leaders. Leaders that stood before the nation and represented this agreement before the people. And at the end, verse 28 says, and the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the temple servants, and all who separated from the people of the, the lands, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, joined with them, and they reaffirmed to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord and keep his rules and statutes. You see people that are named, and you see people that are unnamed. You see people that, that are listed, they're, they're, they're known people within the community, and then you see these unnamed people saying, yes, we are also committing ourselves to this. And here's what's significant about this. We are standing here today because of the commitments of people both named and unnamed that have impacted our lives. We're standing here today because people that we know and people that we don't know have, have made a commitment to walk with God and it has um, cascaded to where we are today. The reason we have the gospel in America came from many men and women throughout history that have been faithful to bring the gospel to this place. The reason we're in Tomball, Texas and worshiping Jesus today is because there's many named and unnamed people that have been faithful to the Lord and brought us all the way to this point. Warren Buffett famously said, someone is sitting in the shade today because someone planted a tree a long time ago. The reason we receive the benefits of today is because of the faithfulness of people behind us. There's a generational impact to your faithfulness. Psalm 145.4 says it this way, one generation commends your works to another. They tell of your mighty acts. See, your commitments in life count. And there's a generational impact that can come from it. One, one famous story that I like is actually the story of John Wesley. He was a man who, who came to faith after he had tried to preach the gospel in America. He went back home and realized, I actually wasn't even a Christian. And, and through some time in London, he, he came to faith again. But what's fascinating is that John Wesley had a, a mom who prayed for him. And the stories of Susanna Wesley and that legacy of faith that she poured into her sons impacted greatly. They were part of the first great awakening that, that brought faith in large part to America. It was this generational impact that impacted our world today. And here's, here's what's the, the great story, parents, is that you can have a generational impact on the lives of your kids. Many of you are here today because you had praying grandmas or praying grandfathers or praying parents that sat beside you and poured into your life. See, the names are significant because these people are saying, in our generation, we're gonna do what was not done in previous generations. We're gonna commit ourselves to following the Lord. But what's fascinating is not merely is it a, a stated commitment up front to uh, do everything that he says, it's a commitment to their children. Look at verse 30. It says, we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. 
Now, culturally, they lived in a, an arranged marriage society. And so the parents would arrange the marriage for their kids. And so what they're saying is, um, we will not give our sons and daughters to foreign wives, meaning we're going to raise our kids in the knowledge of the Lord. Now, as soon as I say that, there's all sorts of issues that kind of raise up within many of us. Okay, can, we, can a Christian marry a non-Christian? Now, let me just say it this way. If Jesus is Lord, he's Lord of not just sections of your life. He's, he gets to lead all of our lives. And so when it comes to these intimate relationships, how do we respond to the gospel? There's an article by uh, uh, Kathy Keller, Tim Keller's wife um, on the Gospel Coalition, and she, she says it this way. You can look at the passages where 1 Corinthians 7 says, Mary in the Lord. Or 2 Corinthians 6 says, uh, do not be unequally yoked. And the issue is not um, race, even for the nation of Israel, the issue is not race. The issue is allegiance. Who are you following? Are you following the Lord? Or are you following something else? And in the, the ancient nation, they needed to make this commitment because marrying foreign women literally meant you're marrying a foreign God. Because, because uh, worship was generational. And so if you married someone that did not have the same faith, what would happen is, is you would be eventually pulled into that faith and be brought to worship that God. So, so marrying a foreign person was, was less about culture or nationality. It was more about worship and religion. And God was saying, look, I don't want you to be, be pulled in two different directions away from me. I want you to worship me alone. Kathy Keller goes on to write, in the words of one woman who was married to a perfectly nice man who did not share her faith, he said, if you, if you think you are lonely before you get married, it's nothing compared to how lonely you will be after you get married. See, when you're marrying someone, you share the most intimate parts of you. And you want to be able to share the most intimate things. And some of you have had struggles in marriage because you, you, you conflict over these very, very important issues. And God wants to, you're going to fight about enough in marriage. Let me just say it that way. But you don't want to fight about this. You don't want to fight about the, the God you're worshiping and who Jesus is to you. And the second verse in 1 Corinthians 6 says that, that to not be unequally yoked. And it's a farming illustration. Some of you are farmers. I was not. I grew up in Katy, but not the farming Katy, the other one. And, but when you yoke two oxen, you put a yoke around them, and they pull. Now, unequally yoked means that one is larger or stronger than the other. And what ends up happening is, is the stronger one starts pulling harder, and either they're dragging the one oxen, or the weak one is, doesn't want to go, and so he just holds the strong one from going back. And, and the, the picture is this. What ends up happening as, as Christians are, are charging after Jesus Christ, if they're not charging in the same direction, one is going to pull the other direction. One of them is going to pull off course. And he says, I want you to be fully focused in your marriage because you can have a powerful, life-giving marriage that follows the Lord and is passionate about him. But if one of you is pulling off the other direction, you're not gonna be effective for the cause of Christ. These decisions matter. And it's a generational impact. It's not only your happiness in the moment. It's the impact on your children and your children's children. 
See, most of us in America, if we're just honest with ourselves, we think uh, in the short term. We think of like two, three, five years, maybe. Well, God, when he speaks to the nation, he thinks in terms of decades and generations. And it's easy for God who says like, hey, a, a thousand years is like a minute, like a breath. It's that way when you're dealing with an infinite God. And he says, I want you to think not in the moment of how I feel. I want you to think generationally. And your faithfulness can have a generational impact. And for some of you, that impact can be biologically. It can be your decision that I'm actually going to make the decisions to, to raise my kids in the Lord. I'm going to make the decision to pray by my kids' bedside. Every, every night we sit by our kids' beds and we sing Jesus Loves Me and we pray over our kids. And every, at the dinner table, every night, one of our kids prays for the dinner. And the reason we do those things is because I want my kids to both hear prayers over them and I want them to practice the discipline of prayer. I want to raise my kids in the Lord. It's not that they're going to be perfect, they're going to blow it. But I want to do my best to raise them in the Lord. And so some of you, it's a biological impact that you can have. But for others of you, it's going to be a spiritual impact. For others of you, you're going to be the uncle or aunt that stands beside that kid and is a, is a beacon of hope to a broken community or a broken family. For some of you, you're going to be the uncle that speaks the words of life to your, to your nieces and nephews. Or some of you, you're going to be that spiritual mentor. And you're going to have spiritual kids and grandkids because you're going to invest your life in the lives of others that need to know Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you what, that's why I love being part of a multi-generational community. Because we need inputs from from wise men and women above us and and we need to pour our lives into men and women that are struggling below us. We all need to help impact one another to have a generational impact because your commitment counts and that's what we see the nation doing. We commit. We're gonna follow you, Lord, and we're gonna follow it in every intimate relationship that we have. So not only does our commitment count, secondly, our commitment will cost. It'll cost. Verse 31 says this, and if the peoples of the land bring in goods of any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy them on the Sabbath or holy day, and we will forego the crops of the seventh year or the um, exaction of every debt. Now, here's what they're repeating. In the Mosaic law, they had a commitment to not work on the Sabbath, to not do any labor, but to, to let that day only be a day of worship. And they also had another principle that every seventh year, they would let the land rest. They wouldn't work for an entire year. You're like, I want to be part of that community. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they never did it. Not one time did they faithfully obey the command of God to let the land rest. And there's a reason they never did it. There's a reason you won't go a year without working is because you're afraid that you will not be provided for just like the nation is afraid they wouldn't be provided for. I'm not saying quit your job, I'm just... They, they were afraid that God wouldn't give them what they needed. And so they held themselves back. And they say this moment, no, no, we're committing ourselves. And we'll commit ourselves even if there's a negative financial 
impact on our lives. They said, we're not going to do commerce on the Sabbath. We're going to stop buying. So they're saying, we're going to stop this process. We're going to commit ourselves to not do commerce on the Sabbath, and we're going to let the land rest. We're going to commit to everything you've asked us to do, Lord. We're going to commit ourselves to you, even at our financial cost. Now, is that true? Does following God create what could be a financial cost? Let me tell you this. There are no victims in the kingdom of God. God loves you. God cares for you. God will provide for you. It may not be everything that you want, but God will give you enough for what you need. And Jesus puts his finger on this issue in his teachings in Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount that we talked about previously. He says, no one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate one and love the other or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And so that's the peace that is being addressed. Are you willing to let God not just be Lord of your relationships, but Lord of your finances? Will you commit to God, yes, I will serve you and I will let my money go where you need it? And that's intimate. So what do you love in terms of your money? I would simply ask the question, what, what does your money flow easily to? And maybe there's things that we spend it on or maybe there's, there's money that we hoard, but, but money gets, gets right to the intimate part. Do I actually trust God that you'll protect me, that you'll provide for me, that you'll give me what I need if it costs me financially? That's, that's getting really, really intimate. Kevin, stop talking about that. Okay. This hit me really hard right as I was graduating college, right as I, after I got engaged, or right before I got engaged. I was sitting on the mountain in um, Park City, Utah, and I had had my mentor, Derek Baker, say to me, I want you to come work with us in college ministry. And I said, okay, I, I, I'm willing to do it. I, what, what, what does that look like? And he's like, well, you got to raise your own support. I'm like, I don't know if God's calling me to that. <laughs> and I remember as I'm out there um, on the mountain, I'd hiked up to the mountain, and I'm, I'm sitting there on the side, and I just had my Bible and a water and, and a notebook. And I'm playing uh, Russian roulette with the Bible, just like, Lord, I need a word, uh, which I'm not recommending, but it is what I did. And I jump over to Joshua 1.8. Joshua 1.8 says this. Sorry, it's taking a while to flip there, but it's better if I read it. It says, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. And I read those words, and I was committed. I was like, okay, Lord, I think I need to follow you and say yes to Derek. And there's a reason for that, because two years previously, I was going through a very tough time in life. 
Everything on the outside was going well, but internally I was just ravaged. I had made it to the national championship race. I had done all these different things that were all great. And I get to the race and I feel empty. And that summer I spent some time with my cousins in Pagosa Springs, Colorado. And I'm, I'm there in Colorado. And I said to my cousin, I said, hey, um, man, God seems to be doing all these great things in my life, but I just feel totally empty. And he's directing me on where to go on this run. And so I'm, I'm getting out uh, to this, these dirt roads. He says, hey, just stay on the main dirt road because as soon as you go to the right, as soon as you go to the left, you're gonna hit a dead end and you have to come right back. I'm like, okay. And so I go out on this run and my cousin's words were reiterating into my mind. And I was like, God, why am I so empty? Why do I feel so lost? And my cousin's words just hit. Stay on the main road. Don't go to the right. Don't go to the left. And then two years later, I'm on the side of the mountain, I'm flipping through the Bible, and I'm like, that's in the Bible? That's unbelievable, right? (laughs) Don't go to the right. Don't go to the left. I'll give you success wherever you go. Kevin, are you willing to trust me with your life? Are you willing to trust me even if there's a financial impact? And on the side of the mountain in Park City, Utah, I call him up. I said, Derek, I'm in. I don't know how I'm going to raise money over the next two months. I don't know how this is going to happen. But I prayed and I wrote letters and I made phone calls. And God provided not above what I needed, but just what I needed. There were some months when I was not going to be able to pay rent. And I'm talking with this couple and talking about what I'm doing in terms of ministry. And they're like, here's a check for a thousand bucks. What? (laughs) I can eat for one more month. Oh, God. (laughs) There's something beautiful about living on the cutting edge of faith. God says, commit your relationships to me. Commit your finances to me. And lastly, commit everything to me. From 32 to 39, at the end of chapter 10, you see the nation committing themselves to worship. And they go through all the details of worship. Now, worship in the Old Testament was pretty elaborate. They had, they had sacrifices, they had offerings, they had tithes that they would have to give. All the financial resources, all the practical resources of sacrifices, everything that was needed for worship year after year. And they said, we are going to commit ourselves to this. Now, previously, the Persian king had, a, had financed the worship of this nation. And this small group of people saying, now, now we're going to own that ourselves. We're going to take on the financial responsibility to worship God because we know that worship is a declaration. We know that worship shows us what we actually are following. Everyone worships something. Romans 12 says this, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is true and proper Worship. The truth is this, everyone worships something. All of us do. David Foster Wallace, not even a believer, says this. There's something that's weird but true. In, a day, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship 
is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you trap, um, where you tap to find life meaning, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always find yourself feeling ugly. And when the time of age starts showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. He says, everyone worships something. And the reason the people of God are saying, no, we're gonna commit to the worship of God is because what you worship is what you become like. He says, if you worship money, that will be your God and you'll sacrifice family, you'll sacrifice energy, you'll sacrifice everything for that almighty dollar. And you can see the stories of men and women throughout our nation's history that when the financial markets hit a downturn, they can't think of a reason to keep on living. Finances are not your God, or you worship beauty. You say, hey, if, if I just look good, if I look good on the outside, and, and you work out at the gym, not because you just want to stay healthy, but because you want to have that curve. And it's tragic when you see our celebrities continuing to chase and chase and chase. And those things never bring life. One quote says this, I pity celebrities. No, I do. They were once perfectly pleasant human beings, but now that they became famous, their wrath is awful. More than any of us, they wanted fame. They worked, they pushed. And the moment after each one of them got it, they became famous, they wanted to They took an overdose and it became unbearable. Happiness never happened. It changed nothing. They were still them. And the disillusionment turned them howling and insufferable. No fame, no acclaim will save you from yourself. What you worship matters. That's why Jesus is saying, no one can serve two masters. And you become what you chase. And the reason God is telling us this isn't to shame us, it's to save us. It's because there's something that that we're holding on to, some worship that we're saying, and it may be our family, or it may be our finances, or maybe just be some other commitments of life. And God's saying, yeah, all of that is all of you, and I want it all. And it's not to destroy you, it's to save you. It's so that you might have life and have it abundantly, so that you would have life to the full. And so every one of us has to make a decision. Are we gonna follow Christ and not just with pockets of my life, with all of my life? And so I don't know where you are this morning, but there's probably a piece that God has put his finger on. Is it your family? Is it your finances? Is it the way that you spend your time, there's all sorts of things that we run to to worship and God says, yes, I want to save you. There's three questions to identify what we actually are worshiping with our lives that I want to give to you. The first question is this. Where do you easily give time and decommit to other things? Where do you easily give time and decommit so that you have that moment? What consumes your dreams Where does your mind easily go to when you're thinking about the good life, the hopes that you have? What consumes your dreams? And where does your money easily flow towards? 
Those are pictures, hints about what you truly worship. And the reason to take inventory of ourselves isn't so that we feel guilty in a moment, but so that we can come to the feet of Jesus Christ. And here's the beauty of people that live a life fully committed to Jesus Christ. They start to look more like the one they've committed themselves to. There's a short story by Nathaniel Hawthorne. It's called The Great Stone Face. It's about a, about a young man who grew up in a, in a community, and there was a legend um, about a great stone rock formation that was over um, above the town. And everyone believed that, that someday, someone who had the resemblance of the great rock formation would come back to the town, and, and when that person came back to town, uh, the, the whole town would, would see all the benefits of, of that person, all the joys of that person coming. And so over time, the, the community was all looking for some great person to come that, that somewhat resembled this great stone face. And so one point in the story, you see a politician coming, and he did some good things uh, as a politician amongst the community, but eventually uh, he, he was shown to be um, corrupt and, and not uh, appropriate and, and, and was not the fulfillment of the prophecy. And then someone else that came forward, he was an author, and they're like, oh man, he's, a, he's an amazing author, he's so great, and, and he did great things for the city, but over time, he, he, he just, there was other character issues that came up, and, and person after person came, like, who is the person that is going to lead our community, and, and they're hoping and hoping and hoping. And young Ernest would spend all of his time staring at the side of the mountain of that great stone face, contemplating, hoping. And as the story goes on, the, the young Ernest grew up and, and, and he be, began becoming wiser and wiser and eventually he went off to university and then off to, on to seminary and came back as a, as a pastor. And, and each day he would care for the people as best he could and, and then he would spend his time staring at the great stone face. He would care for the people and preach messages and then and then stare at the great stone face. And at one point, another person came to town. And once again, everyone was all excited. Okay, this person's gonna save us. This person's gonna lead us in this great, play, this great new direction. And he goes and visits young Ernest, who's giving a little sermon, a little devotion to some people, probably a handful of people. And where he was standing, the light caught just right. And you saw, you saw the profile of the stone face and the profile of Ernest. And this visiting man said, it's him. Ernest is the fulfillment of the great stone face. He is here. And this says all the people said, oh, Ernest, Ernest, you got, you've been great here. And Ernest, to the end of his days, never believed it. But when you stare at the person of Jesus Christ, you know what happens? You become more like him. Suddenly you love better. Suddenly you care for people better. Suddenly over time, God starts making you look more and more and more like your, his son. And when, you, when people see the glory of Christ shining through his people in every area of life, let me tell you what the world sees. The hope that they need. See, Jesus lived the perfect life we could not live. He died in our place for our sins. And he didn't stay dead. He rose in victory. And he's calling you to come in relationship with him. 
to commit to him and that he will change you from the inside out as you stare deeper at the words of scripture and deeper in prayer and devotion to Jesus Christ, you will look more like the son. And as you look more like the son, Jesus Christ, you become the people the world needs. So what are you worshiping? What are you committed to? My challenge to you, my encouragement to you is to spend some time wrestling through those three questions. Where does your time go? Where does your money go? Wrestle through the questions and ask the question, Lord, what's holding me back from being fully committed to you? Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. And Lord, I pray that by your grace, you would change us to look more like your son. And by the power of your spirit, you would make us to be a people that more fully reflect your glory. And Lord, I pray that we would be a people that look deeply into the face of Jesus Christ and look more and more and more like your son so that you can have control over every single area of our life. And ultimately, Lord, we can have a life that impacts for generations to come. It's in your name we pray. Amen.